0: Amen. Well, it is October 11th. It is 2017. Our message tonight is Jarhead Covenant. Jarhead. When, uh, when I give you the term Jarhead, that ought to bring to mind a military term, I'm sure. Good. Think on that for a minute while I brag on you for a minute. I was proud of LCM at the One Association Conference. Uh, that was a special time. It's been 20 years in the making, even though it was only our third annual conference. And uh, I happened to be privy to what it cost the church to host that. And uh, it was extraordinary. It's more than a month of their offerings. But I also happen to know that in a single day, we doubled that. I love that you're a blessing everywhere you go. I appreciated the way that you attended the meetings. I appreciated your generosity in those meetings. I appreciate the maturity that the Word of God has created in you. I love those churches. It's a funny thing. We're all put together a little different, but to me it's like a family reunion. When I think of Pastor Slaughter, I can't help but think of some of the first disciples that came out of this ministry. And he's creative beyond belief. I, I love to spend time with him. It always stirs something in me. It's also funny to see a man who is now pastoring people who call him sir and remembering what it was like when he suggested there was an age gap between us. <laughs> you know? When I see Michael Hutchinson again. Wow. Are there finer men in the world than those guys? See the addition of Pastor Massey. Man, that guy's even funny. It's, it's incredible. I didn't know there were smart, funny, and good-looking Yankees. I thought two of three would work, but he, he got all three. You know, to be able to see Pastor Trister outside of his element in Victoria was a neat thing. Uh, there's no time that I see the Submission Ministries gang and, and I don't just smile in my inner being. Are you happy now that these are more than just names to you? It's hard not to love Pastor Justin, isn't it? You know, he uh, carries in an anointing with him that's comforting to me. The life that you live in the kingdom is largely going to be defined by the relationships that you keep and maintain. Amen. I mean, that's, that's just the truth. And when you look back, you can regret words that were spoken. You can do so many things. The one thing that you don't want to leave is a trail of broken lives in your midst. You, you hope to be an edifying influence. There are times that's not possible. I mean, anybody who has ever been used of the devil uh, says the same things about us. We, we have a drop-down menu that we can laugh and say, okay, Eric's an alpha male. We're a cult. We're controlling. You know, we, we're, we're used to all of those things. But the reality is there are a whole lot more lives that have been turned on to the fire of God's holy word. Amen. There are a whole lot more lives in a lot of states now that are so serious about the word that they're charging the gates of hell with it. I want to talk to you about a jar-headed covenant because that jar-head covenant is how you get from here to there. And I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a lot of opposition along the way. And sometimes the worst opposition is going to come from between your own ears. The term jar-head in a military sense refers to a Marine. I knew we had army guys in here. I knew we had Navy guys in here, so I picked the one that I did not think we had in here. Most would say that it refers to their style of haircut. You know, that's how they've been characterized through the years. As we get into the subject tonight, we're going to look at a slightly different use of the term. Before we get there, there's one other thing that the Marine Corps also says a lot that uh, I'm going to emphasize tonight. When I say "simplify," what's that short for? It's it's short for semper fidelis, and it means always faithful. To be clear, even though semper fi has been the motto of countless towns, countless businesses, countless organizations, even our own military has chosen it, there's only one that has ever actually been always faithful. There is no room for the testimony that says, I've loved the Lord all of my life. You're a liar if you say that. And i met many liars, mostly in church. The guy in the bar is at least honest about his life. The truth is, at some point in your life, you realize that you were a God-hating Gentile. That although your lips said you loved him, your actions showed clearly that you don't. That you had been lying to yourself and had been anything but faithful. That's the narrow door that so few find. That is the way to eternal life to understand our situation and yearn and beg for a change that can only come from the one who is always faithful. Am I speaking the truth? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32 tonight. We have such beautiful things going on in the ministry. Buddy and Kim are about a month out from heading to Peru for their two-month... Scouting out the land, and then they'll come back, undergo their ordination, and uh, you know, buy a one way ticket to Peru. It's exciting. It's at the same time that the lions are coming off of the field. I encourage you all to pray for David and Rachel and their new beautiful baby, Riley. Uh, That family will need prayer as they transition to their new goals. But look at the symmetry in the kingdom one family comes home, another is going. We didn't plan it, but they're within 24 hours of each other. It's almost like the Lord knows what it takes to meet the needs of the body. Amen? Are you all in Deuteronomy 32? Starting in verse 3. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Say that with me. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is He. This is our God, faithful in all that He does. Many of us have had the kind of year that would cause the devil to tempt you to wonder why God lets this happen, why God lets that happen. The doorway to life begins with the idea that He is always faithful. Say it with me again. He is always faithful. You're going to have to hang on to that. When people would rather eat you than fried chicken, when people are certain that your good intentions were bad intentions, when you give sacrificially, financially, emotionally, spiritually, and people spit on your work, you're going to have to remember always the Lord is faithful in all He does. Nothing comes into your life that He didn't allow. That's important because if you begin to allow yourself to view it another way, think of the alternative. God is unfaithful and everything that's happening to you is some kind of mistake. Now, what happens when we do that is we divorce ourselves from the Scripture. What happens when we do that is we begin to make excuses for our own behavior. God is faithful in all He does. Look at verse 5. They have acted corruptly towards Him. To their shame, they are no longer His children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father, your Creator, who made you and formed you? Oh, that cracks me up. I can hear so many mamas in here, you know? Is this the way you repay your Father? Is this the way you talk? Is this the way I taught you to clean your room? There is a behavior that shows that you are His children and there is a behavior that shows you are not acting like His children. Deuteronomy 32 asks an extraordinary question. Is this the way you repay the Lord? So I'm asking you, church, how do you repay the Lord for His faithfulness to you? If He is always faithful, what is our response how many times have you met people say, "I know the Lord's got a plan for me because He saved me from that car wreck. He saved me from that OD. The Lord did this." My response is always the same: "Yes." And now, what obligation do you feel to Him in your daily life? Oh well, you know I, I don't go to church much and I, I don't get into all that. But I know He's got a purpose for me. Yes, and you're still spitting in the face of your God. The reality is he's always been faithful, but we have not. This sums up the problem practically, doesn't it? We serve a perfect, just, and faithful God, but we are far from perfect. We're often unjust and typically unfaithful. Boy, we don't want to hear that, do we? But how many times do you ask somebody, how are you doing today? And you know they lied to you when they spoke to you. Hey man, how are you doing? Great. Great. But you know they're not great. How many times this week have you lied to somebody that asked you the same question? Toss words are so cheap. Promises have become cheap. Everything that we do and where you're in that environment, you then have to come up with other phrases to separate you from the cheapness. No, 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 man. I, I, I mean it. Really. I'm telling you the truth when I say, Well, what were you doing all the other times? want to look at what the standard of the word required for every Israelite male. As we go through this, I think it's going to cause us all to reflect on our life in a good way. And you remember as we're doing this, I started by telling you I'm proud of you. And I am proud of you. But it's fun to sharpen a sharp sword. You know, I asked someone once, how do you get an edge on it like that? He said, I sharpen it every chance I get. That's how it ought to be with the word. I believe that as good as things are in here, there are some things that we could tighten up on. Many will hear this message and say he's preaching to that situation or that situation. I want to assure you, I'm preaching to you. If somebody else gleans something from it, that's my secondary goal. But I am speaking to you in a way that the word has spoken to me. Turn with me to Numbers 30. Begin in verse 1. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything that he said. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Watch, we have clarifications here, though. When a young woman still living in her father's house makes a vow to the Lord or obligates herself by a pledge and her father hears about her vow or pledge but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, none of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. If a young girl made a pledge and her father heard it and didn't say anything, whatever she pledged, God binds her to. But if the authority above her, her father, said, no, she shouldn't have made that pledge, she was released immediately. If you skip down to verse 13, her husband may confirm or nullify any vow that she makes or any sworn pledge to deny herself. A husband had the same right as a father. Think about this for a minute. We serve a perfect, just, and faithful God who holds us accountable for our vows and pledges, even our very words. Do you see a big difference between a vow, a pledge, a commitment, a covenant? You know, every word that we speak is supposed to be true. He even instituted provisions for nullifying a foolish vow, pledge, or promise. The one in authority over you had the authority to release you. The word speaks of men releasing women. This means their wives or daughters. Because the sanctity of a man's word as the head of his home was so high that it was never to be given carelessly. In other words, it was expected that a young girl or a distressed wife might make a vow that she shouldn't or couldn't keep But the man as the head of his household was to take special care in making a vow because of the level of authority that he carried. I want you to get this. The more revelation you have, the more authority that you carry, the higher your understanding in the kingdom, the more God holds you responsible for your words. Wow. That's frightening for me. You know, where the... Man has many words, sin is not absent. Is there anybody in here squirming with me tonight at that thought? This has caused some to try to make distinctions between a promise, vow, pledge, or your words given. I want to consider a couple of things from a first century rabbi named Yeshua. I fell in love with him. This comes from Matthew 5. Turn with me to Matthew 5 and verse 31. Say there when you're there. I feel the heaviness descending on you. We're not going to stay there, I promise. But it's worth considering. Any of you have brothers that you know? They say, man, I'll be with you on moving day. And you know good and well in the two weeks between now and moving day, they're going to come up with an acceptable excuse to not be there. I mean, anybody know folks like that? You know... When they say, I'm with you, man, it means that they want to be, but there's no chance that they're going to actually be. I mean, do you feel me here? Man, none of us want to be that person, do we? It's because we know what God honors. We know what He loves. And yet, we have to be honest. So many times we've not done what we promised we were going to do. So many times we have let Him, the faithful God, down with our unfaithful ways. The Scripture addresses this. Are you in Matthew 5? Starting in verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Isn't it interesting how he marries those two principles? In your Bible, so often there is a chapter, not a chapter heading, a subject heading between them. In the original text, it's not there. When the Lord is talking about a marriage covenant, he relates it to a vow and an oath. In the Newer Testament, the word oath is there. In the Older Testament, the passage he's quoting is the word vow. Do you know what that means? A vow, an oath, and a covenant are all equally important to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of a great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black, much less make them come back, right? (laughs) Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Am I the only one that thinks that's a little confusing? So are we not supposed to take vows? Are we not supposed to make commitments? Should should we just look at our our wives and say, yes, and not explain what yes is? What what does that mean? I mean, I'd like to read to you what David Stern says it means. Is that okay? You know I love David Stern. I'm about to pick on him just a little bit, but I love him. Do not break your oath. This is the Jewish New Testament commentary or do not swear falsely, or do not perjure yourself. Keep your vows to Adonai. The distinction between vows and oaths is hazy, not only to us, but also within Judaism. And the issue doesn't seem important today. The early believers understood Yeshua as not prohibiting all vows. You can see this in Acts 18 and Acts 21, where believers kept vows. But as prohibiting vain oaths, the rabbis of the time made the same prohibition. In fact, in the Apocrypha, you can compare passages that say do not accustom your mouth to swearing oaths and do not habitually use the name of the Holy One to passages in texts like the Decalogue. Philo of Alexandria said he recommended not making oaths. Finally, David Stern mentions the Talmud. This is Bava Metzia. Let your no and yes both be righteous. This is what the commentary had to say on the topic. I don't know if that makes it any clearer, personally. With all respect to the commentaries, what if they've all overcomplicated the passage? Perhaps Jesus simply wanted us to treat every word with the solemnity of a covenant. What if, knowing how unfaithful we can be, He did not want us to have a varying level of commitment to our own word? Because if we had a varying level of commitment to our own word, how would we treat His, given that we do not honor ours? Think about this. I promise. No, I pinky promise. I cross my heart and I hope to die. I swear on my mother's grave. I promise on the lives of my children. If your first promise isn't good, then no additional commitment promised can be trusted either. Do you follow me? Why do we feel the need to make additional promises and oaths? Because we're not keeping the first one we made. That's why. You're going to be there at five? I really, really, really promise I'm going to be there at five. Now what do you already know even though we've made up that scenario? I already wasn't there at five at least one time or I wouldn't feel the need to say that. Because if you had confidence I was going to be there at five, it would be yes. And that's it. Do you see how our speech even betrays how lightly we take promises these days? As we move forward, I want you to notice something about a vow. The vow was up to the individual that made it, but the individual who made it was totally accountable to the community and totally accountable to God for what they had uttered. Consider Ananias and Sapphira. All of the property was in their hands. Did they have to give it all? No, they could have given anything that they wanted or decided to give or felt moved by the Lord to give. The promise was they did not, or the problem was they did not keep their oath to give it all and lied about it before and after. You are free to do anything that the Lord leads you to do. But what the community of God cannot and must not put up with is a promise to do something that you then say you didn't make or annul. Or amend, because God doesn't hold a man guiltless. Who does that? Does that make sense? Now, if you weren't squirming before, you should be squirming now. Lord, if you'll get me out of this, my whole life, I'll serve you. I'll do anything that you say forever and ever and ever. Just get me out of here. Anybody ever prayed something like that? Anybody ever found at least one day you did not want to give him? Okay, a lot of you are very holy, so let's not say a day. Let's say an hour. Like, you knew you were supposed to get up and go pray for somebody. You knew you were supposed to go to the nursing home. You knew you were supposed to cut the grass just like Dad said. But man, you were just kicking it with your friends a little bit. And I mean, after all, aren't you entitled to a day? But didn't you promise? Yeah, but everybody knows when we promise like that under duress and everything. We don't really mean it's not like a pinky promised it. Not like a double dog promised it. It's not like it was a contract. Not like it was written in blood. Jesus went on to say in Matthew twelve something important on the subject. It's Matthew twelve, thirty six. Say there when you're there. Y'all don't get mad at me. We're all equally unfaithful in here, but we're going to figure out how to get this right before this is over, I promise. I don't intend to stay this way. I don't like the way it feels. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the judgment day for every careless word they have spoken. Now we're going beyond covenants. Now we're just talking about the sanctity of each word that you spoke. When you said I was a worthless idiot, did you mean that I literally had zero worth? I mean, think about what it means to make a careless statement. Am I the only one in this room that has ever overemphasized a point? Tell somebody, Raka, you're in danger of the Sanhedrin. Tell him, you fool, you godless idiot, you're in danger of hellfire. That's a little scary, isn't it? Jesus really didn't mean that. But what if he did? What if when he said something, he meant exactly what he said? What if all of the commentaries and the talking heads and the limp-wristed, weak-willed pulpits are wrong? And Jesus meant... He's going to hold you accountable for every word. Are you beginning to feel the waters of debt and discontentment and sin and compromise up around your neck about to drown you out? Come on now. How many promises have you made that are not even in your ability to keep? I'll never let you down, man. Never. Really? Hey, you're a very powerful person. You'll never let them down. I find doing my very best, I let people down every day. I mean, it's incredible. Even when I thought I didn't do anything but bless them, sometimes they tell me how much I let them down. There are so many things that we promise, and they're not even within our ability. That's an incredible thing. I'm frightened because of the amount that I speak. I'm frightened because I know how important it is that we get this right. So I'm asking you, Christian, how important is it that you consider your word sacred? Does the New Testament tell you that you should speak like one speaking the very words of God? If there was no way to get out of a promise, if there was not a way to get out of a vow, a covenant, or a pledge, how carefully would you consider it before you made it? All right, think about New Year's Day, right? New Year's Day this year. This year, I'm going to learn such and a language. But <laughs> this year, I'm going to go to the gym. You may even went and signed a contract on that one. But you asked when you signed the contract how you get out of it, just in case you don't keep the contract, right? Tell you, you know, in the gym membership business, you oversell your capacity by 3 to 400% because you know you know the rate at which people will not show up that signed up is that incredible Proverbs 20:25 20, is an important scripture it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows I found out that when people are getting married, they're so excited, they're so in love, they have not fully considered their vows. Do you know when they consider their vows? They consider their vows in the next year when they find out that marriage is actually fraught with difficulty, that you have to die to self. You begin to wonder, this beautiful creature or person that I'm married to, was this actually... I mean, was that all really like... Did God... I mean, like, really? It's the very reason that we have vows. It's the very reason that we have vows in a public setting. The very reason that we have symbols of our covenants on our hands. These are reminders because of our unfaithfulness. They're reminders of what you promised and when you promised it, with whom you promised it, and in front of whom you promised it, so that you would keep your word. Most of society has totally given up on the idea. I pray that you haven't. I haven't. In my experience, Christians who are serious about the Lord do not often think they are breaking their vows or covenants. If you love the Lord, you don't believe that you're doing that. They know that there's no real biblical path for that kind of behavior, so they fall into one of three categories. Now, by they, I mean you you know, are we clear about that? Yeah. Who am I speaking to? Me. There we go. I didn't see every hand. Who am I speaking to? Me. Okay, so that way you know who to find in the parking lot afterwards if you're mad. <laughs> Wade Sutherland. <laughs> the first category of people who have made vows and are breaking them. They redefine the vow or they reword the vow, or they renegotiate the vow to absolve themselves. Come on now. This is... I know I said I'd love you always, but let's think about what that means. I know I'm with her now and not with you, but you always hold a special place in my heart. I didn't break a vow. Are you sure you didn't break the vow? Why didn't you break the vow? Are you saying today... That your new interpretation is the understanding that you had when you made the vow? See, I hear Christians do this all the time. Couple this week. Amazing men who really love the Lord. But I think if they carefully go back and look at what they said their intention was then versus now, they'll see that they are squirming off of the altar while it is difficult. Have you ever done that? Are you doing it now? You know, one of the first things that I notice as a pastor is people say, I love you, Pastor. This is my church. I love how you bring the Word. Then I correct you, and you no longer love the church. You no longer love me. You no longer love the way that I bring the Word. I recently had a conversation with someone who said we were in the top three churches they had ever seen, never seen disciples like us, and 15 minutes later I was a controlling demonic cult leader. It's incredible the way in which the term can change. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because we all do it. We begin to look for a loophole and say, where's Keith? Keith, raise your hand. Keith is the only attorney that goes to our church at this moment. His entire profession exists because people do not want to keep their promises. Said no, 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 man. I'm in family law. Tell me it's not the same. No, 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 man. I'm in criminal law. Tell me it's not the same. See, we're either writing a contract to try to very specifically consider this. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? You know, a lawyer came up with that phrase. If a farmer had come up with the phrase, he'd said, "You gonna tell the truth?" <coughs> but why do you have to spit on his hand? Why do we have to shake on it? Why not just say, because all of us know that the other person, when in trouble, will try to reinterpret the circumstances. They'll try to renegotiate the promise. <laughs> I understand this. I broke a lease and man, did it cost me severely. Okay? All kind of reasons that I feel like were mitigating. There's another legal term for you, right? I thought there was a breach of quiet enjoyment. Very special legal term the jury also thought so unfortunately the appeals court did not <laughs> you can pay an incredible price for breaking your word in a worldly setting also mostly people get away with it i'd like you to consider malachi 114 can you put that on the screen for me cursed is the cheat <laughs> cursed is what Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. I thought we were just talking about an animal. No, you're talking about the sanctity of your word when speaking before God Almighty. And when we promise one thing, but we deliver something else, do you know what God says? You're a cheat. What are you really cheating? Are you cheating him out of the best goat? No. You're cheating him out of the kind of honor and reverence that a great king deserves. You're treating him like you're in a flea market and you can swindle him. Do you hear me? When we promise, we need to over-deliver on our promise, not under-deliver. Or we're cheating the reverence of God's name, aren't we? Man, that ought to be a frightening thing to you. This was sobering to me. How about the second category? They say that their breach is in fact not a breach, we're charismatics, but a spirit-led fulfillment. No, I'm not breaking my vow. God has led me to do this. Wow, you better be right. How important do you think that is? If I tell you I'm going through that door, And you repeat it to me. And I take vows in front of you. And then after praying for a few years, I decide that I'm going to go through that door. We've made God a schizophrenic to justify ourselves. We've made God double-minded instead of us. Need to come to one of two conclusions. Either God never called me through that door and I was wrong, or God (coughs) called me through that door I thought, but I was wrong. You can't have it both ways. God is not double-minded. In fact, the cry of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, which means that He's one person, that He's of one mind, that He's of one purpose, that He does not change like that. How many times do charismatics grow tired in their commitment and simply say, The Lord led me in a new direction? I know a young man who said, The Lord told me I must not sleep in my bed until I marry that girl. Well, he's married to another woman and has children with another woman today. So is he still sleeping on the floor or is he sleeping in his bed? (laughs) Now, I love him. I know where his heart was. His heart was he really, really believed that God had spoken to him about that girl. But the mature thing to do is go, I was wrong. I'd kind of like sleep in my bed now with the girl that he is speaking to me about and that I've married and taken vows with because the other one told me I was an idiot, slammed the door in my face and walked away. True story. Think on this, saints. Have we uttered things rashly and we need to back up from them? Probably so many times. There's a procedure for that. We have to go to the one that we made the vow with and acknowledge our folly. Ask to be released. Do you understand? But we can't just move on like it never happened. You make God look guilty in front of the nations. We can't do that. So three categories of people that tend to not admit they broke their vow, but are Christians. The serious Christian says, "No, no, 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 no no. It's God's misunderstanding. What I really said was, they redefined the vow. The second group was, no, 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 it's a misunderstanding. See, the thing is, is God has told me that I'm to go in this new direction. The implication there is, of course, that you who want to see the vow held are the unspiritual ones. There's a third group of people. Those who repent and admit their unfaithfulness and ask for help. Man, do you know what kind of power there is to go, I thought I could do it and I was uh, was wrong. (laughs) I really could use you praying for me. In fact, I've gotten good at mad mad at everybody I'm supposed to be doing this with. I need your help. That is a, a situation where people can get healed. That's a situation where God can come in and make up for your lack. But in the first two... By the way, I didn't tell you about the spirit-led option, but the spirit-led option, Deuteronomy 29, 19, says if a person persists in going his own way because he's invoked a blessing on himself after hearing the words of this, I'll never forgive him. See, well, maybe we should put it on the screen. Put Deuteronomy 29, 19 on the screen. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. Verse 20, The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man, and all the curses written in this book will fall upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Can I tell you the Lord doesn't like it when you blame your unfaithfulness on him? Can I tell you? Baptists don't tend to do that. Methodists don't tend to do that. Pentecostals and Charismatics tend to do that. The Lord told me that I'm going to this country. The Lord told me to uphold this cause. The Lord told me to give this money. It rained that day. You don't like the people involved. It got difficult. Your neighbor spit on you, whatever it was. Now the Lord told me to do something else. As if God had no idea what was going to happen. No idea how difficult it would be. You understand what I'm saying? We need to be careful about these things. The first two are forms of deception. And you can be sure that if you're the one that's deceived, you won't know it. (laughs) I'm advocating a jarhead covenant tonight. I want to show you a jarhead covenant. You ready? It's profound, isn't it? I'm suggesting that you take something like this. You write five names of men that are allowed to correct you. Men that you have often disagreed with, but in the jarhead covenant, you don't have the right to disobey when they stand in unity. You following me? The idea that any one of you can be deceived but all five of you can't be deceived at the same time. You need to put those names in a jar, and don't put a name in the jar if the man has never corrected you. If they've never corrected you, they're not jar-worthy. They're not jar-head material. You put those names in the jar, and then when it's insinuated or implied, or you have begun to believe that it's possible... Or somebody thinks it's possible, if there's any hint of, you're backing up on a vow or commitment. You take said jar, which is sealed, of course. Otherwise, you would constantly be taking out the names of the people and putting in names of people who agreed with you. You understand? Sealed, mind you. You take jar in the event of emergency and you break it over your own head. Why do you break it over your own head? Because if you're the one deceived, you will be the last one to know it. I grew up with a drunk. It's ridiculous. Very rarely would he ever admit to being drunk. Ah, oh, I'm fine. Obviously, you couldn't find the house, but you're fine. And he was blessed with this very special gift. The next day, he never remembered it. I've noticed that about deceived people. They never remember the conversation the way it actually happened. Now, remember when I talk about deceived people, I'm not talking about somebody else somewhere else. I'm talking about covenant breakers like us. You know who we're sure of our actions are pure as snow? Our own. We're our own best defense lawyers. Well, I know I may have said, but what I meant was, yeah, but what did you say? Well, the thing is, is the Lord knows my heart. He knows your heart by your actions. Is your heart demonstrating unfaithful or faithful actions? The thing is, is we need a jarhead covenant. We need something that says, when all else fails, somebody has the right to return me to sanity. In the event that you think you're infringing on your own word, a covenant, a vow, or a pledge, or a commitment, we can either repent immediately or we can break the jar over our own head and call a jarhead covenant meeting. I'm going to tell you the truth. The one association was formed as a jarhead covenant because it became clear to me personally that I could not trust myself. It became clear to me that the more the Lord gave me influence, the more the Lord gave me responsibility, the more the Lord anointed me to move people, the less I could trust myself. I found that I was under more spiritual attack than I'd ever been under. I found that thoughts were not as easy to dismiss as they had once been, and they were coming far more frequently. And I knew that I needed accountability. Now remember, when you make a vow, you get to choose the terms of your vow. What you don't get to do is renegotiate those terms later. See, you make the terms of the vow, but the community, the jarhead community... Make sure that we're all faithful to the terms that we agreed to. Tell me that's not beautiful. Now we have to deal with the fact that none of us have been faithful to the terms. We're all trying to hold each other to a standard that none of us are hitting. That's incredible, isn't it? What do you do when you're a bunch of men who don't see clearly trying to hit a target? How do you handle it? I can't even decide whether I need my reading glasses, to be honest. Truth is, as I see better with them, but right now I'm seeing okay without them. Tomorrow morning I might need them. How do you know when you're the one not seeing clearly? I've watched and the pride of man. Never lets him admit that he's the one not seeing clearly. It's always every other person. Do we need a jarhead covenant? Man, you do. I'd like you to consider the spirit of a couple things. You ready? Are you ready? Yes. What's wrong? Are you all upset? You're thinking. You should be thinking. It's very important we get this stuff right. And like a contract, the jarhead covenant is there for the moment when everybody's lost their mind, but most of all for you. You need to put in it five names of five people that are not yes men. Five men that are acquainted with the word, acquainted with you, and have demonstrated a capacity to look you in the eye and say you're wrong. You know what the most difficult part about the Jarhead Covenant is? Finding five men who fit that qualification. We generally don't keep people around us that do that. You know my very favorite thing about Charlie? He's got no problem telling me when I'm wrong. It's been funny through the years. Like nobody quite corrects me with the astute, precise observation that Charlie does. I love him for it. He's watched me grow up. It's the closest thing to a spiritual father that I have. If he's not capable of doing that, who is? Does that make him right all the time or me right all the time? No, not not at all. Neither, Neither direction. But if he doesn't have the right, who does? You understand how dangerous that, that can be? If nobody has the right to correct you, you're going to have to consider what the scriptures that we're about to read mean. I love the fact that Charlie often sees things differently than I do. That forces me to look at the word and see. And even then, not an island of myself, if all five Charlies, meaning Charlie and Bosch and Wade and, and Matt, if these guys are in agreement, it's not up for debate. I'd have to be a jarhead to say no to them, in which case I'd take out my jar and I'd break it over my own head and I'd read my vows. Amen? Turn with me to Second Timothy 3. If there's not five people in this world that can get you to turn around, then how idolatrous must you be? Can I tell you the number of people that do not have five? They'll say they do. Oh, I've got a board of five. Yeah, but you've never listened to them. And they're on your board because you dis- you, they, they don't disagree with you. They're on your board because you gave them a position precisely so you would have the appearance of accountability without having it. What good is that? You'll all be deceived together and guilty together. I want men in my life that have the right to walk up to me and say, I love you. You're persuasive, you were impassioned, and you were totally wrong. If you don't have that and you're wrong, how would you know it? Are you hearing me? There's a need for accountability in Christ. There's a need for faithfulness to covenants. We're going to come back to that. 2 Timothy 3.14. Now, I actually do think I need these. In 2 Timothy 3.14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. In other words, if Paul can't tell Timothy this, who could? Are you hearing me? I would say he was in Timothy's jar. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you mean knowing the Scripture alone is not enough? No, you need people in your life who show you how the Scripture applies to you. And you have to mature. And you have to grow up. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Who is equipped for every good work? So we're waiting for the man of God, the person in covenant, to be equipped. And what equips him? Teaching in the Word, correcting in the Word, rebuking in the Word, training in the Word. So tell me something, saint. That's all your personal interaction with the Word? Or is that somebody who is in the jar who has the right to say, you don't have a correct reading of the Word or understanding of your life. You don't have a correct teaching based on the Word and your life. You need training in righteousness in this area. Who has the right to do that? Do you see why we go to churches so often where there is no one who would tell us that? You don't just need it from a pulpit. A pulpit is distant. It's impersonal. Most pastoring in the church gets done not from behind the pulpit, but as we sit next to each other in social gatherings. Isn't that incredible? Stop and think for a minute, if you had to fill your jar, whose names would be in it? And can you trust those names would be in it in the years to come? Somebody has to help you. Even Timothy needed it. How about this one? Second uh, chapter of Philippians, verse 2. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort in His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Before we finish any more of that, who is better than you? Think on that. Is their name one of the names you would have put in the jar? Somebody who you think their walk exemplifies Christ, in a way that yours you hope will grow to be? Do you really consider others better than you? Or when it comes down to being accused of having renegotiated your word, when it comes down to being accused of having falsely been led by the Spirit away from your word, do you consider your assessment better than everyone else's? Are you hearing me? Do you see the ways in which we become unaccountable? We become unaccountable when we're not actually applying the word, but we're claiming we are. Now they're very, very quiet now. I could hear a mouse in here. How about this one? Philemon two nineteen. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served me in this work of the gospel. The jar should be full of names of men that have proven themselves. If they've never corrected you, then you need another name. Well, I'm talking about the Jarhead Covenant. Consider this. If you have those names and they have proven themselves, when they disagree with you later, is that a disqualifying feature? Why did they make it in the jar? You hear me? Yes. Guys, I've preached many messages to you. Over a thousand in my lifetime in Texas, not to mention the time period out of the country and the time period in the... Uh, third world country of Louisiana. Never have I preached a more practical message and ministry survival message than this one. We've taken some oaths. And I want to tell you about those oaths for a minute, particularly a couple of them. These are called irreducible minimums for a covenant relationship. The third one of the irreducible minimums As I have proven to my brothers and my brothers have proven to me that we have each other's best interest in mind, we will place our brother's need above our own. I will sacrifice my thoughts, emotions, and opinions to implement the Word's instruction for our good. Why do you think that's an irreducible minimum for a covenant? Because you won't realize when your emotions and thoughts and ambitions have led you astray. You're going to have to trust that your brother's see that when you don't come on somebody say you know it's true Amen. ladies are there any ladies in here is yes. the only woman raised to her are there any ladies in here come on girl power in the room i'm about to ask you a very serious question when your husband's lost does he admit it i'm just talking about driving Now, I know why you're laughing. Because no guy likes to admit to his girl he has no idea where he's at. Can I tell you how much worse it is when somebody's spiritually lost? When they've been doing good, but something's cut in on them. When they have a little bit of unforgiveness, a little leaven, a little hurt, they never admit to it. You know why? Because they're hurt. They're deceived. Wow, how about that? We're going to run all those things out of here. How about this irreducible minimum? It's our first one. I want and I'm asking for encouragement, correction, rebuking, and training in righteousness. According to the word from my friends and peers, this will equip me for every good work. Why would that be important if you're going to work together? Because all of us need it. And can I tell you, if you knew you were wrong, you wouldn't be wrong? You hear me? Anybody ever built anything and didn't like what you built? You set out to build a birdhouse, set out to build a treehouse for your kids, set out to do something, and you look at it and you want to be proud, but the whole thing's leaning. <laughs> if you knew it was wrong, you wouldn't have built it that way. Sometimes, if you wait until the consequence of your action, I love how everybody says, I had to work out, it's just messy. Not if you have to live in the house. That's said from a position way outside the house, not the one inside it. It's actually showing a disconnection, a dispassionate, not caring kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I understand that the Lord is merciful, that the Lord is gracious, that He works in all kinds of situations. That is not an excuse to jump out of the plane with a bad plan. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's do this then. As we move forward with this, I think you've got the irreducible minimums. So let's return to the idea of mother speech. Is that okay? Do you remember in Deuteronomy 32.6, mother speech? Is that the way that you repay the Lord? The Lord is faithful, and so many times we've been unfaithful. I want to consider in our remaining few minutes how we repay the Lord. In Deuteronomy 7.12, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep His covenant of love with you as He swore to your forefathers. Everything the Lord has ever asked you to do is loving. Everything. But the truth is, we haven't done the things that He asked us to do. If anybody loves Him, they must obey His commands. If anybody loves Him, they must walk as He walked. But how many times do we not walk as He walked? How many times have we broken His covenant of love? One thing I find out Christians like to point to is when somebody else breaks the covenant. It's like it makes you less guilty because they're guilty. Can I tell you it doesn't? It just makes you all guilty. There's no grading on a curve. Isaiah was overcome with this feeling and he said all their righteousness is filthy menstrual rags. All of it. He realized that nobody was appropriately keeping God's covenant of love. So Jeremiah spoke about a day. It's Jeremiah 31. Turn there. Say there when you were there. A jarhead covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them. Usually the one who wants to renegotiate the covenant is the one who's breaking the covenant. Isn't that true? I know I made that deal with you and I didn't do it. I promised you a burger today, but I'll give you two burgers tomorrow if you make the covenant with me again. Isn't that usually how it works? Here, that's not what's happening. The one who was faithful to keep the covenant of love is the one who is offering another covenant. How beautiful is that? He looks knowing that the people have been covenant breakers and He offers them another covenant. What does that tell you about our God? Is He looking for a chance to call you a violator of the covenant and kill you? Is He looking at your careless words hoping to use them to trap you? No. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord... I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Have you ever made a promise and it just got dull to you over time? It faded. You forgot that you said, I will never say those words that my father used to say to me. And then you heard them come out of your mouth. You understand what I'm saying? He is promising to put the requirements of, the words of, the terms of the covenant in your hearts and minds so that if you love him, you will want to keep them. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more oh my god how good does it feel if you've broken your word and his word and yet he forgives you simplify he's always faithful even when we're not but how do you repay a lord like that who is willing to look at your broken covenant to look at your broken promises, not just before the cross, every day since you met Him at the cross. Psalm 116 is where I'd like to hang my hat this evening. I had a particularly difficult meeting. I love everybody involved so much that... uh, I don't know about y'all. In the moment of a tense or difficult situation... I'm a blunt instrument. The words don't come to me right. I'm just like a dumb box of rocks. The next day, I'm a poet. Like when I replay it in my mind, and then I should have said, and then they would have said, and and man, it all just... Yeah. The problem is, is I didn't. What I can tell you is that God's Word will show us what to do. For all of you out there who can relate to I wanted to do right and somehow or another even my best attempt, I swear I had a conversation with a man earlier today. I tried with all of my heart to find a way to bless him and it seems like it just was not possible. It wasn't going to take it no matter what I did. And I have to just smile, bleed in my boots, stand up and preach. It's what we do. If there's anybody out there, sitting out there like me that wants to do good, And no matter how hard you try somehow or another, there's just this bad stuff keeps following you around too. Am I the only one like that? Or can you feel me a little bit? Psalm 116 is for you. I love the Lord, for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because He turned His ear to me, I will call on Him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple hearted. When I was in great need, He saved me. I love the word simple hearted there. Sometimes we become amateur lawyers when we realize we've broken our covenant. We try to explain all the ways we didn't really break it. If we were just simple hearted we could say I'm in great need and I need you to save me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. Oh man, have you ever felt like that? Prayed many times, Lord, I love you, but I don't know about the rest of your people. Verse 12. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Isn't that what the question was in Deuteronomy 32? Is that the way you repay the Lord? Is that the way I taught you to clean your room? My mom used to say, Is that the way you talk? I'd be like, Obviously it is. I just said it. Smack. (laughs) Woman was fast with her right hand. Not so much her left, but her right hand. How can I repay the Lord for all this goodness to me? Isn't that the question? Do you feel indebted to the Lord who is always faithful, especially because of your unfaithfulness? Here's the answer. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all this people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in the midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Think of this. How do I repay the Lord? First thing that He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Man, I had to think about that. And the Lord showed me the cup of salvation. When a Jewish groom wanted to marry a Jewish bride... He showed up outside of her house. He made her promises. And he held out a cup of wine. And he said, uh, A promise. I will take you out of your father's house. I will take you to be with me. These kind of promises. And if she drank that cup, then she was agreeing. The cup of salvation is a cup that was held out, that was offered to you. And if you drank of it, you entered into a covenant with the person giving it. When did Jesus hold up a cup? He held up a cup in his communion meal. And when he held it up, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I am about to make that new covenant with you. I'm going to renew your covenant, but it's going to cost me something. My blood. Cost his very life. The second thing that he says Call on the name of the Lord. Do you know where Jesus went right after the communion meal? To the garden to pray. In the difficult times when you want to break your covenant of life and death, when you want some easier way, some way out, what are you committing to do? You're going to fall on your face and call on the name of the Lord. Do you know He'll send angels from the heavens to strengthen you? Because He's a covenant-keeping God. Next, fulfill your vows to the Lord in the presence of all the people. Do you notice? He says, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Where were they done? Were they done in private? Where were they done? This was the crucifixion. This Psalm 116 is forecasting something. It's forecasting How do I repay the Lord for goodness to me? I'll hold up that communion cup of salvation. I will pledge a covenant of marriage to a people that cost me my life. Secondly, I will call on the name of the Lord when I am physically too weak to carry it out. When I'm sweating as if drops of blood. When I'm under such pressure and everyone is sleeping around me. But I'm calling on the name of the Lord. When the covenant is about to break because of my weakness, I will call on the name of the Lord. And then thirdly, I'll die publicly to keep this covenant. You know, he says that twice. He says, fulfill your vows in the presence of all of his people actually twice. Maybe this is why verse 15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Why is it precious? Because they're not just dying. They are dying because they're keeping their covenants. They're dying because they're calling on the name of the Lord and not backing up from that which would kill them. Tell me, doesn't that ring of Revelation 12? They love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony, their covenant, they kept their word unto death. The call to the gospel came in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. You know, that's not just day one. It's every day thereafter. Nothing is harder for the Christian than keeping their word. And what was your first word to him? I will deny myself. I will be crucified daily. And I will follow you wherever you lead me. You know what this does for us? Could you put Colossians 3.3 3 on the board? How do you repay the Lord? What are we to do with a God who is always faithful and a people who are not faithful? Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He allows you who drink that cup with Him, who live that cup out with Him every day, He allows you to take off your unfaithfulness and put on His faithfulness. Do you really want to renegotiate your word? Do you really want to claim that His precious Spirit is now leading you in some new, previously unknown way? Or would you rather just admit that you're unfaithful so that God can put faithfulness on you by hiding you in Christ? I'm advocating a jar-headed Semper How were we always faithful? Because we're going to trust the body of Christ when we can't trust ourselves. We are going to lift up a cup of salvation that says, you know what? He died for me. I need to consider right now what ambitions in me that needs to die. I need to consider right now what plan is in me that needs to die. I need to die so that I can live the life that He's calling me to live. And how will that show up? I'm going to fulfill my vows in full view of all of the people. The kingdom is about accountability. The way you honor the Lord is you promise Him your life and then you make good on it in front of all of the people that heard that promise. It's why baptism is public. It's why repentance is public. It's why the resurrection of the dead is going to be public. Could you stand to your feet?